Now we're ready to begin this morning our new series of studies in the book of Revelation. And I'm sure you've been dying with anticipation to know how in the world we're going to uh, approach this uh, very peculiar book. Um, it's true. The book of Revelation is a very odd piece of literature. There are um, strange animals that don't look like anything we've ever seen in the zoo with unusual heads and unusual numbers of heads and horns. I've often thought if John had illustrated this book, it would look like Morris Syndex, uh, Where the Wild Things Are. There are uh, all sorts of unexplainable phenomena, the sea, a third of the sea turning into blood, and those sorts of things that strike us as very, very strange. I think a lot of people are really put off by this book. In the first place, they don't think they can understand it. And secondly, there have been some very strange interpretations of this book. Uh, as a friend of mine says, uh, the ingenuity of some of these systems is only exceeded by their improbability. And uh, we wonder, is this a book that really says anything to us? How can, can we make sense out of all of these symbols and numbers and beasts and, and figurative symbolic uh, expressions? Now, I think this book can be understood. There are portions of it that, frankly, I don't understand, and a lot of my thinking is still in flux. Uh, I'll tell you where it is, where I think I understand. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that. Where I'm still trying to work my way through the book, I'll, uh, I'll tell you that my thinking's in transit. I was talking to uh, Clark Petticord just this past week on the telephone. He called me from Arrowhead Springs, and we were chatting about a number of things, and I told him I was going to start teaching the book of Revelation and uh, he quoted Helmut Thielicke, the, the German theologian that he's uh, quite familiar with, and Thielicke's instruction to young preachers. He says, if a, uh, when a boy's voice is changing, he should not sing in the choir, and when a man's thoughts are changing, he should not teach in the church. And uh, in some sense, that's true. We certainly shouldn't teach the things uh, of which we're not sure, but uh, we have to interpret the book. We have to try to understand it. Where I think I understand it, I'll tell you. Where I don't think I understand it, I'll, I'll tell you that also. Because uh, our purpose is to gather, to study the book, and arrive at a useful, applicable interpretation of it. I'm not here to try to impress you. Our authority is Scripture. We need to study it together and, as a body of believers, come to a conclusion about what we will do as a result of our, of our study of, of this book. Now, those are the ground rules. Um, there have been four systems of interpretation of this book. If you read Steve's uh, very fine paper in the Cold Challenge, you probably uh, know that by now. Uh, if you can find that uh, piece of paper this week, you might want to go back and refresh your thinking. One system is called the preterist view. The word preterist comes from a, a Latin word praetor that means uh, past. And in this particular system of interpretation, uh, everything in the book is seen as fulfilled during the lifetime of the Apostle John. In other words, it's all past. Nothing in the book is future. The beast would refer to the emperor, probably Domitian. The second beast would be uh, emperor worship, or those priests and others that advocated uh, the worship of the emperor, that sort of thing. The problem with that system of interpretation is that it simply doesn't fit the facts. There are many things in the book of Revelation that cannot be located in history. They haven't happened yet. So that system strikes me as, as inadequate. It's incomplete. 
There is a second system of interpretation that's related to the preterist view. It's called the historical uh, system of interpretation. Those interpreters that take this uh, point of view, and by, by the way, there are many of them, and there are some great names associated with this, uh, with this particular system. Martin Luther believed in a historical approach to the book of Revelation, as did Isaac Newton, who wrote many of our hymns, Hingstenberg, the, the great Old Testament theologian. These men believed that the book of Revelation described events from the first century A.D. to modern times, which would be their times. Um, or our times, if we today were taking that, that point of view. But again, that system seems inadequate because there are symbolic descriptions of events in the book of Revelation that have not yet occurred. can't find them anywhere in history. So for myself, that, that approach seems inadequate. The third approach is what is usually referred to as the symbolic or the idealistic uh, interpretation or symbol system of interpretation. The idea there is that the symbols don't mean anything. doesn't matter what they refer to. The important thing is to get the message of the book. And uh, that we want to do in any case. But again, that system seems, it seems inadequate because when we look at other examples of apocalyptic literature, that is this type of, of literature, the symbols mean something. The prototype for our study of Revelation is the book of Daniel. And when you go back to the book of Daniel you discover that the beasts mean something there. The lion is a symbol of, of Babylon. The leopard is a symbol of Greece, the bear of, of uh, the Median Empire, uh, and so forth. The symbols relate to some actual historical historic entity, some nation or some thing, some event in history. So simply to get the message of the book is not enough. We need to discover what the symbols refer to historically, whether we're talking about the past or some predicted event. The approach that I feel most comfortable with is usually referred to as the futurist uh, system of interpretation. And as I see the book, it refers to events that began in John's day in the first century. And the book of Revelation describes the whole course of church history through our times on into the future to the coming of Christ. So there will be events here which go back to the past, and there will also be symbols that refer to events that have not yet occurred. They're still future from our standpoint. Now, what I'd like to do this morning first is give you a simple overview of the book, an outline that we can hang our thoughts on, and then we'll look at uh, chapter 1 together. The best outlines of books, whether we're talking about Old or New Testament, the, be the best outlines are outlines that grow right out of the literary structure. I'm always uneasy about outlines that we impose upon a book. I think we need to read the book enough times that we see the structure that the author intended. And I believe that's what we have in the book of Revelation. John has given us clues all the way through. And uh, the book is organized around, I believe, around the phrase, in the Spirit. You find that phrase first in uh, chapter 1, verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then he describes what he saw, seven golden lampstands and a man standing in the center of the lampstands. That phrase, in the spirit, means to be in a trance, to be in some kind of ecstatic state. John finds himself in line with all of the great prophets in the Old Testament who saw things that no one else saw. He was a seer, S-E-E-R. He saw something, saw visions. And the first vision he saw, which is indicated by this phrase, I was in the spirit, is that of the risen, glorified Christ, and then in chapter 2 and 3, the 
the Lord's people, seven churches in Asia Minor. That's the first vision. The second time that phrase occurs is in chapter 4, verse 2. Immediately, he says, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And then he describes the heavenly throne scene with God the Father seated on the throne and in his hand a scroll sealed with seven wax seals. The scroll apparently was a will, a testament, described a legacy that someone would receive. In those days, wills were signed or sealed with seven seals, seven uh, wax seals indicating the seven witnesses to the, uh, to the will. This will, as I see it, is a description of the inheritance of God's people. Chapter 1, you have the vision of Christ. Chapter 2 and 3, the vision of His people. In chapter 4, the will that describes everything that God has in mind for us as His people. It's all written on the scroll. But before the scroll can be opened and that inheritance can be realized, evil has to be done in. God has to do something about the presence of evil in the world. And what follows from chapter 4 on through chapter 16 is a description of the progress of evil as things get increasingly worse, consummated by some time which he describes as 42 months or three and a half years just prior to the coming of Christ, when everything will break loose, when God will, as it were, take his hands off of man and let him do as he pleases. Now, the enemies of God's plan to give the inheritance are described in those chapters from 4 to 16. There is first the dragon in chapter 12, the old devil. He's behind it all. Secondly, there is the beast, who is a man, one man who comes out of Western civilization in whom all the he's, he's the... he's the paragon of humanism. He's everything that man wants to be apart from God. He symbolizes the flesh. And then there is Babylon, the great harlot. That's the third enemy of God's plan to bring about the inheritance, to bring salvation to the earth. It's Babylon, which is a world system. It's secular society. It's what the Bible calls wor the world. So the three enemies of mankind are described in chapters 4 through 16. The devil, the flesh, that is man without God, just as we are as independent men, and the world, which is a community of flesh-governed, humanistic individuals. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, John describes for us the progress of these three enemies as things get worse and worse. And finally, just prior to the coming again of, uh, coming again of Christ, evil in, in all of its intensity is displayed. That's 4 through 16. Now in chapter 17, verse 3, you find the phrase again, in the Spirit. He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The woman is the harlot, Babylon full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. That's a description of the scarlet beast. And from chapter 17 on, we have a description of God's judgment upon, first of all, the world, the harlot, secular society, humanistic society without God. That's in chapter 17. Then in chapter 19, verse 20, the beast is seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs. So God judges uh, the second of mankind's enemies, the beast, man, the flesh, as it's personified in one man in this historic setting. And then finally, 
in chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So the devil, who is the instigator of it all, the enemy of mankind par excellence, is thrown into the lake of fire. So in reverse order, you see, in, in 4 through 16, he portrays the enemies of, of man and God as the world, or pardon me, the devil, the flesh, and the world. He reverses that order in chapter 17, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are defeated. And then finally, in chapter 21 and following, you have a description of our inheritance because now evil has been done away. It's been done to death. There's nothing to prevent God from lavishing his grace upon mankind. Now, in a nutshell, this book teaches us how to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those were our enemies. And whether we're talking about the world and the flesh and the devil and its manifestation now or some future time when God takes his hands off of things and he lets evil be manifest in its complete form, this period we call the Great Tribulation, it really makes no difference which of these time periods we're talking about. This is a book that teaches us how to live life and like it. It's designed to teach us how to be God's men and women in the world today. And whatever we think about the rapture, when it occurs, the principles remain the same, as we'll see. All right, now that gives us an overview of the book. And if you're still with me, let's uh, go back to chapter 1. This um, first chapter, like all gall and all good sermons, is divided into three parts. The uh, first section is an introduction, verses 1, 2, and 3. A salutation follows, verses 4 through 8. And a vision in verses 9 through 20. <clears throat> first, the, uh, the introduction. The revelation from Jesus Christ. It could well be the re revelation about Jesus Christ, but I do not think that's John's point here. There are things said about the Lord Jesus. Certainly, he's revealed in all of his glory. But uh, the point of the introduction is that it comes from Jesus Christ. It is, incidentally, a revelation. The Greek word means something that's revealed. It's intended to be understood. It may be obscure, may be difficult, but it's not impossible. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is, the Lord Jesus, to show to his bondservants, that's us, the things which must shortly take place. Our idiom in short order probably uh, best explains that phrase, shortly take place, because John does not mean that they will happen immediately, because they've not, many of these things have not occurred yet. But in terms of God's perspective of time, in short order, these things will occur. And he, that is Jesus Christ, sent and communicated it by his angel or through his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So it's a vision. It's something he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed or keep or obey the things which are written in it for the time is near. That's the introduction. Three things to observe about the introduction. The first is the process of revelation, which John describes. It begins with God. This is God's word transmitted to Jesus Christ. The Lord then through his angel 
revealed it to John. The angel here is apparently the interpreting angel that uh, occurs at various times in the book of Revelation who explains what the visions mean. And uh, it's transmitted through this angel to John, who then turned around and wrote the words of this prophecy to the church of the first century and to us. He wrote the things that he saw. Now, the important thing about that process is that the whole thing comes from God. This is God's Word. And it's a part of what Paul describes as Scripture that is profitable for doctrine, that is, for teaching, for reproof, it disciplines us, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be perfect, equipped for every good work. In other words, this is not a book written to satisfy our curiosity about future things. This is a revelation from God about life something he wants us to know. It's not merely good advice. It's a revelation from God. The second thing we learn in this introduction is something of the method of revelation. It's symbolic. John saw something. He was a seer in line, as I said, with the prophets of the Old Testament. It is symbolic. That is, we can not interpret this book at the first level on a literary, on a literary level. A literal level, excuse me. It's symbolic. And therefore, when we're talking about locusts and beasts and these sorts of things, we need to understand that these are symbols which need to be interpreted. The final thing we're told in this introduction is that those who read and those who hear are blessed. Now, in those days, they didn't carry New Testaments around in their pockets. Most of the New Testament wasn't even written. They didn't even have access to the Old Testament because they had no printing presses or mimeograph machines or Xerox machines or anything like that. They memorized Scripture. That's the way they carried it around with them. And when they gathered on the Lord's Day, someone read the Scriptures to them. There was a lector who read, and the teachers in the church would comment upon what was read. This is a blessing then pronounced on the person who reads the text of this Scripture. That's me, I suppose, in this case, which is good to know. And those to hear, which is you, assuming that we give heed to it that we listen to it and obey it and permit God to change our hearts as a result. If we do, John says, we will be blessed. The word blessing is one of those words that connotes so much more than it denotes. Uh, you, you almost have to immerse yourself in the literature of this time in the Old Testament to understand what John is talking about. In Old Testament times, blessing meant to have lots of, have a big family, lots of kids running around, a lot of warmth and and love in the family, and uh, to have uh, large herds and fruitful crops, and your barns full of uh, good things, and it just evokes a feeling of of well-being and wholesomeness and wholeness, and and all of those ideas. And that's what John means. If we give heed to the words of of this revelation, it will give us a sense of worth. It'll make us happy. It'll fulfill us. It'll satisfy us. It's what we're looking for. It's the answer to the quest that we all have for significance and worth in life. So we need to take seriously what John has to say to us. Now let's go on and look at the salutation in verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, 
and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. That's a quotation from Daniel 7, as uh, the side note of the New American Standard tells us. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn after him. That's a quotation from Zechariah 12. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, again, we have three things in this uh, salutation. We're told that John is the author. This is the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, who at the time he wrote this uh, letter was exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos was a penal colony, much like Devil's Island, off the shore of the coast of Asia Minor, which is uh, today Turkey. It was a miserable place. That's where um, the emperors of that time exiled people that were particularly pesty. And uh, John, apparently because of his preaching, was convicted of sedition and packed off to Patmos where he worked in the quarries. It was a hard, hard life. But uh, while he was there on the island of Patmos, as he will tell us later in this chapter, the Lord revealed this revelation to him. Secondly, we're told that uh, something of, the, uh, of who the recipients are. John wrote to the seven churches that are in Asia. And the names of those churches are given to us in verse 11. He says there, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, for most of us, those names are unfamiliar, except Philadelphia. They played in the Super Bowl a few weeks back. But uh, the rest of these names uh, are virtually unknown to us. Ephesus was the city closest to Patmos, and that's why he mentions it first. And the rest of these cities are were actual cities in the first century in Asia Minor, arranged around a highway, that went through the most populous and most uh, uh, influential, wealthy part of the Roman Empire, at least that portion of the Roman Empire in, in Asia Minor. This is the route that the postman would take if he was delivering mail. It actually is. And many people think that that's why the, the uh, churches or the names of the cities are arranged in this order, that the mail first went to Ephesus and then was delivered to each of these churches in turn by the stars or the messengers. We'll see next week who those messengers uh, are. But these are literal cities, and there were churches in these towns, and the book is addressed first to these first-century churches, which we'll have a chance to observe in the next couple of weeks in chapter 2 and 3. The third thing we see in this uh, salutation is a benediction, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace is for the worthless, peace is for the restless, and those seem to me to be the two problems that all of us have, feelings of worth and a desire to do something that's significant. If we don't feel worthy, we feel worthless. And if we're not doing anything significant, that makes us restless. And God is the one who provides both. He gives us a sense of worth and significance. And John says all that comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's an idiom for someone who's changeless, someone who's always the same, who exists throughout eternity and is never different. As James says, there's no shadow of turning with him. And uh, in John's changing circumstances 
and in our the flux of our own circumstances, the knowledge that grace and peace, a sense of worth and significance in the world comes from one who's always the same, stays our hearts. And then we're told that it also comes from the seven spirits who are before his throne, who are before his throne, because he sandwiches that expression between him who is, that is the Father, and Jesus Christ. I take this to be a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. And here, not seven Holy Spirits, but the Holy Spirit displayed in seven ways, according to the list of attributes in Isaiah 11. He is a spirit of knowledge and counsel and wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And then finally, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he's one who stood firm without any compromise. He believed so completely in his cause. He went to the cross for it. That's the idea of a witness, one who's faithful to death. The firstborn from the dead, not only did he rise from the dead, but he has the rights and privileges of the firstborn and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Ah, yeah, see, that, that's the whole point. Domitian's on the throne, but that's no big deal because there's one who rules the universe, and that's the Lord of glory. And there's no panic in heaven. Things may be shaking apart on earth. John may be in exile. He may be separated from his family. Times are tough, but uh, they're not out of control. Here is one who rules over all the universe. They put him in that grave, and he looked dead and lifeless. He was, in fact, dead and lifeless, but he broke out of that tomb, and he's alive today. He's alive and well, and he rules, but more than that, he loves us. He's not merely a stern, harsh king. He is a ruler of the universe who loves us. He cares about us. And he's done something about the essential problem that separates us from God. He's released us from our sin. We have forgiveness for the past and power for the future. And he has made us to be a kingdom. They may uh, be living under the Roman Empire and under the, the boot of Roman armies, but they're a kingdom, all of them, not just the church in Smyrna, but the churches all over the Roman Empire are part of a great kingdom that has cosmic universal significance and so it is with us we're part of a kingdom with the folks down the street in the baptist church with the folks up the street in the charismatic church with the catholics who worship down there those in that church who acknowledge jesus christ as lord and and love him we're part of a great kingdom which john is going to describe in this book as the invisible government of the universe See, what John is inveighing against is this idea that we're supposed to play church. That we get ourselves wrapped up in buildings, which are important, but they're not the end of it all, and programs, and our robed choirs, and our stained glass windows, and the, the sort of programs that we have going on for our youth and whatnot. And all those things may or may not be important. I'm not arguing the significance of those things, but they're not the main things. The main things, he says... The main thing, he says, is that we're a kingdom of priests. You see, that's what kind of kingdom we are. A priest is someone who stands between God and man. He talks to God about men, and he talks to men about God. That's what a priest does. And therein lies our significance as a church. Not a bunch of people who are in the church because they, we come on Sunday morning and sit in pews and we listen and we sing and we interact, but because we're a people who go out into the world and we're God's priests there, interceding, or the world, to God, and telling people about God through our lives, through our character, 
and through our spoken witness. And if we're doing that, we are the invisible government of the universe. And empires may come and go. Emperors come to the throne, and they're taken off the throne. And circumstances may change, and times may get tough, but we're a kingdom of priests, and that gives us significance. And that helps us to align our priorities. The most important thing in the world is not to be the best racquetball player in the Pacific Northwest. There's nothing wrong with that. Or to beautify your body, or to beautify your home. Those things are not necessarily wrong, but they're not the first things. And we, as a group of God's people, must do the first things. And not just play church. I just come on Sunday morning and think we're doing the work of the church. We need to be in the world, a kingdom of priests, representing men to God and representing God before men. It seems to me that's what he's clearly saying. And finally, he's going to come back with clouds, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, and he's going to set everything right. So history has a purpose. And we're a part of that ongoing purpose of history. That ought to give us significance. We're not some speck being swept about in history. We have a place. We have a post, as we were told a couple of weeks ago. And we need to take up that post and maintain the job and the position that God has given to us there. All right, let's move on then to the vision. Verses 9 through 20. Oh, boy. We only have three minutes. Will you stick with me? I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which were in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He links together the kingdom and tribulation and persecution because they all belong together. If we're going to be a kingdom of praise, we can expect to undergo tribulation. There will be hard times and we will have to persevere. You know, we here in the United States really are in, a, in, a, in a, an anomalous situation. There's really nothing in, in, in the... You look back through the history of the church, and the kind of peace that we have endured and the freedom to preach the gospel is virtually unknown throughout history. When John wrote these words, they were under, the church was undergoing the persecution of Domitian. It began with Nero, and it's intensified through the various emperors that, that followed, and under Domitian, things really broke loose. And thousands of Christians lost their lives. And it's continued that way through history. We grieve, and rightly so, over the murder of four million Jews in the Second World War. But historically, there have been millions and millions and millions of Christians that have lost their lives simply because they named the name of Christ. Nothing more. That's a fact of history. And the fact that we've been spared that sort of persecution is we're very fortunate It's a privilege. It's not a right. Peter says, uh, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. If the Father did not spare the Son, what makes us think that that, that we're going to be spared? We can thank God for the freedom we have from persecution, but it is most unusual. As many of you know, they, they, conservatively, they estimate that a quarter of a million Christians lost their lives in Uganda just within the last five years. These were Christians who died because of what they believed, nothing more. It's my belief that that's the name of the game 
And I thank God for what we have, but we do not necessarily have the assurance that we will not go through a time of real distress, whatever you believe about the rapture issue. It's my feeling that the suffering of the last three and a half years of the tribulation is simply an intensification of everything that the church historically has, has experienced. And that's simply a fact we need to face, like death. We'd like to keep that one at arm's length, but we have to face the fact that all of us are going to die someday. As Ecclesiastes puts it, there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party, because at least you're facing facts. And we need to face facts about what may come our way and be prepared for it. Whether we go through the tribulation or not, we're not going to argue that point now. But even if we don't, to be spared from suffering is unusual in the scheme of things, and we may not experience that freedom very much longer. But John's burden throughout this book is not to throw us into a state of fear, but prepare us for whatever may come. He describes himself as a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. He knew what it was to suffer. He was breaking rocks on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's not because he was a crook. He simply was an exponent of the gospel. I was in the spirit, he says, on the Lord's day. That's the first day of the week, Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reached, reaching to his feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. I don't think we need to understand each one of the, every detail in this description of Jesus. It's the total impact of the picture that John wants us to see. He describes Jesus as clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. This was a robe that denoted majesty. This was the sort of garb that kings wore. I suppose if this had happened today, the Lord would have appeared in a cutaway, much like Reagan's inaugural suit. The point is simply to show that he's the king. He's the ruler. His head and hair were white like like wool, not only does he have majesty, but he has dignity. There's wisdom. He's a sage. He's wise. His eyes were like a flame of fire. It's a description of his energy, his power. And his feet were like burnished bronze, a description of his stability, and his feet firmly planted on the ground. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, cascaded out of his mouth with a thunderous roar. And in his right hand he held seven stars, which he will uh, tell us later are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers of the seven churches. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, a symbol of, of the word of God, which is two-edged. It comforts, but it also judges. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Awful to his enemies. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades as something no one else has, the key that unlocks the door to death. No one has ever solved the problem of death except the Lord Jesus. 
Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John sees two things. He sees seven lampstands which he says are descriptive or symbolic of the church, the seven churches in Asia Minor. It's an apt symbol for the church and its purpose. We're to be light in the darkness. Again, we're not playing church. We're a source of light in the world. And as John says to one of the churches, if, if you don't shape up, I'll take the light away. You'll just go on playing church, but you'll have no impact upon your times. I had a lot I wanted to say on this particular issue, but we're out of time. I just want to say we need to, we need to be light. We need to stop the things that divide us, cause us to increase the darkness. It's one, to me, one of, the, one of the really serious faults in the church today is our tendency to split, split, and split over issues that really have no significance. And we fuss and we fight and we criticize one another and we gossip and tear each other down. And all we're doing is telling the world that we don't have it together any better than you do. But here, John describes the church as a lampstand that gives light to the world. We're a serving, loving, priestly community. We'll talk more about that next week. The second thing he sees is a man. He says, one like a son of man. That's an idiom for a man. And at this point, I don't think John knew who it was. He fell at his feet when he saw the glorified Lord. And the Lord put his hand on him and said, John, don't be afraid. And right away, John knew who it was. He'd heard those words so many times, the exact inflection, the very words, the tone of voice, and he recognized the Lord. He'd heard those words in the, in the boat when they were about to sink. He, ho he heard those words when Jesus told him he was going away. And the disciples were panic-stricken, and Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because things are not as they seem. It may look like your life is being torn apart. Your faith is under attack. Your health is deteriorating. You're struggling in your family. There may be relationships that you're struggling with, and you're hurting. Your business is declining. You're suffering financially. There doesn't seem to be any purpose or reason or rhyme in life. Your children are rebelling and they're struggling with their faith and, and our tendency is to panic. And the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is the way I am. This is the way I really am. They put me in that tomb and I was lifeless, but I broke out of that tomb and I'm alive today and forevermore. And this is the way I really am. And this is what keeps us stable when it looks as though there's no purpose or reason for living, that we can remember this is the way things really are. Would you take the hymn book out of the rack in front of you and turn to hymn number 204? This um, hymn was written by Helen Lemel. She's a contemporary writer, died in 1961. Her husband left her blind and with a whole house full of children. Just walked off and left her. 
And she wrote the words to this hymn, O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. When everything looks dark, remember what the Lord really looks like, what He really is. Through death into life everlasting, He passed and we follow Him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. That's the theme of the book of Revelation. The Greek word nikao, which means to conquer, occurs over and over and over again. We're fighting a battle that's already won. Though evil is progressing, we're fighting a battle that's already won. We've read the end of the book. We know how it's going to turn out. Some of you know my limerick. The world had a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We hope that the story will end to God's glory, but at present the other side's winning. That's not true. That's a lie. When you read the book of Revelation, you see that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We've already won. And then finally, his word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that's dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for this second look at things, for the reminder that things are not what they seem to be, that what we see around us is not what really is. Thank you for this picture of a glorified Christ symbolized here as the conquering one, the one who's conquered death, won the victory over life, has promised us an inheritance, is ready and able to bring down every enemy to the fulfillment of his promises and will. Thank you that he who is promised is faithful and he will do it. Take away from us the fear that that we all experience when we see what's going on around us nationally and personally. Help us to hear again and again this week your words, don't be afraid. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.